Hello, and welcome to the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Freckleton. Have you ever noticed how fear stops us from creating and sharing our best work? Join the Fearless Storyteller as we explore the heart and soul of writing stories, songs, and scripts that sell with the people who write them. Each guest has their own unique hero's journey and insights into the intersections between limiting beliefs and success. When she's not co-writing songs on Music Row in Nashville, Tennessee, Elizabeth Elkins is one half of Granville Automatic, an acclaimed band with a passion for storytelling. She's also the voice behind the defiant punk rock project, Lights of Detroit. You'll want to hear her stories and perspectives on the disparate processes of co-writing songs and writing for oneself. She also has a passion for the preservation of historic places and their unique stories. In that vein, she's collaborating on a fascinating book, The Hidden History of Music Row, due for publication from the History Press in the summer of 2020. Elizabeth Elkins, welcome to The Fearless Storyteller. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Ethan. Yeah, and so for people who are listening to this show, um, you want to tell people in your own words about who you are and what you do? I am primarily a songwriter living in Nashville. I'm also a guitar player and half of a band called Granville Automatic. Hmm. I'm also a writer, um, writing my first book right now, and a preservationist as well. Wow. And, you know, I've been digging in and looking into what you do and like such an eclectic range of of things. And I'm curious how it all comes together under the umbrella that is Elizabeth Elkins. So how does that's a, a good, a good, good question. Yeah. And you know, that's what you're doing right now, but you know, um, not to really bring the past too much into it, but you, you did a notably a lot of punk rock and established mm-hmm. a name there. And so how does, as a punk rocker, find their way to Nashville? You know, I think there's a lot of um, closet punk rockers in Nashville. Um, I think in particular folks that come from punk and and rock, we love good stories just as much as um, the Nashville songwriter loves a good story. So for me, um, it was a combination of really wanting a lifelong career in music mm. and in many parts of music, especially, well, kind of for everybody, age is such a big factor in, in success and longevity. Mm. But one place where that matters a little bit less is songwriting. And um, I've always been fascinated by the song and by writing first and foremost. So to me, there's not that much difference in writing a punk song and writing a country song it's uh, mm. you know lyrics are a little bit different and sometimes the melody is a little different but the basis of it to me is is the same interesting um i can see you know having being a songwriter myself not punk where that would be true and i know that you know there's a lot of nuance there in terms of of that um how that lands in terms of you know who songs are for that come out of the commercial country engine versus right like maybe i don't know if you define it by life stages or parts of ourselves pieces of ourselves or like how would you i don't know that yeah i don't know that i define it that way i you know i even growing up you know, I grew up listening to, you know, some of the great songs out of Nashville without even knowing it, because my dad was always playing the Everly Brothers and Elvis mm-hmm. Presley and people mm-hmm. like that. 
my mom was listening to the Carpenters and, and Neil Diamond. And then soon I was listening to the Smiths and Social Distortion and mm-hmm. Paul Simon and Billy Joel. And I, I guess and Leonard Cohen in particular, who also was, Leonard's a good example, not a country writer, but fascinated by it because the mm-hmm. storytelling can be so sublime. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know if I separated because I still, in fact, today was working on getting some studio stuff set up to track another punk record because I can, I've continued to write that. Mm-hmm. I like for that stuff. I like to be the singer in that. That's really my my where I have the most fun as a singer is doing the rock stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's still something that I keep writing and in fact, continually am inspired being here in Nashville um, to write that stuff uh, because of music row. And despite of music row, I find mm-hmm. it inspiring to, to continue to write songs the way I always have. Yeah. So t- tell me more about that. What, what does that mean? You know, because of, and in spite of. Well, I think because of music row, I've become a better songwriter. There's no place in the world like this place where um, where you can be around people who do this at such a masterful um, level, both the technique and the emotion of it. The masters are here. Um, Of course, there's a handful of those outside of Nashville, but there are a whole bunch of these guys and girls who can write incredible songs here, both artists and songwriters. Mm -hmm. But you do have to play by a certain set of rules to be a songwriter in Nashville. You know, we have this great separation of country and Americana, which is one of the more confusing things in my head. Mm. Um, But I think having feeling like there's a constraint of, you know, of playing by any rules to me has always been inspiring. If I can find ways to not play by the rules, then I will do it, which always inspires the kind of lawlessness of, of punk rock. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they're, they are a big, a big circle chasing a tail in songwriting to me. I like to do both of them for sure. <laughs> so that's a really fun image. And I imagine, you know, you strike me as somebody who does a lot of co-writing. It sounds like that, that your, your own point of view and taste and that willingness to kind of walk that edge would make you an asset in the room for, you know, getting that original idea, that original spark of a concept as well. Sure. And I think that's very true. I think you can come to Nashville and try to just write what everyone else is writing and you can still be successful doing that, but having something that makes you stand apart is, is always a good thing. And uh, I think even in what, what my bandmate and I do in Granville Automatic is very different. Um, but that's been a huge asset to us as songwriters in Nashville because we do write very different songs and in a different way with that project. And uh, that's opened some amazing doors here on Music Row and in the city because we don't do the standard thing. So I, I do think, and co-writing, you know, when I write the rock stuff, it's it's mostly me or me and the bass player from the band. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, I think it's important to write by yourself and to, to co-write for sure. They're both equally important. Hmm. And so feels like you've got this definite balance between the two beasts as they are. Um, <laughs> yeah, I try to do both for sure. Yeah. And so how is co-writing different for you? Oh, it's completely different. Um, one, I come from a world where you write when you're inspired. You know, I, uh, yeah. there's that... There was a lot of discussion recently, I think, with the Ryan Adams stuff that happened, that this myth of the rock songwriting genius and sort of the troubled soul that sits mm-hmm. around with a bottle of whiskey and, and mm-hmm. bangs, the, bangs the song out on the piano. Or Leonard Cohen, who 
you know, tried to get lost all over the world from Greece to LA to, to Leaper's Fort here in Tennessee, trying to find the muse. And I think I come from that and I believe in that. And when I write by myself, I, I, I feel like I'm closer to that sort of um, whatever world that is that can hand you a finished song in 30 minutes and you wonder where it came from. Mm-hmm. That magic is often hard to capture when three strangers are sitting in a room. Yeah, That doesn't mean that it is, it doesn't happen because it does. Sometimes you just, something shows up and you write it and you're like, wow, I can't believe Wow. Like this is a great song. And so that happens, but it's just such a different process. I think, you know, coming in with ideas and parts of songs really does help. But sometimes you're just writing from a title or completely cold as you walk in the room. And mm. sometimes it feels that way. It feels like you really crafted a song. You didn't You didn't feel a song, you crafted a song. Now, that doesn't mean a crafted song can't be number one and make you, you know, lots of money. Right. But it is a balance of figuring out um, which works better. But then there's this intangible on both sides that suddenly something just happens when you're writing and you look for those moments. Hmm. Yeah, again, I think that's a good word, intangible, because like at the end of the day, you're you're creating something either way that you wouldn't be able to create otherwise, and they're not the same thing. And mm-hmm. and I imagine in a co-writing situation, right? Like when you're writing by yourself, it's I'm expressing myself and my art, and it's for me. And there's a shift doing a co-write. Like the song may be for you or it may be for a project, or it could be for somebody else. Um, how does that How does that work for you in terms of mindset? Like different I think purposes? that's a very, yeah, that's a very important part of it. Because I ask someone here that I work with in the studio a lot that does demo recordings for country stuff. Hmm. And after a few, few years of working with him, I said, hey, have you noticed a pattern of what songs you're hearing songs written by some of the top writers all the time? Mm-hmm. Have you noticed a, pa- a pattern in what gets recorded by major artists? And he said, well, the only thing I can think of is that that lyric matched what that artist was going through at the time, mm-hmm. that that lyric resonated for that person. So mm-hmm. it, I didn't really think about that until I was doing this full time. And I started thinking, well, so-and-so just went through a divorce, so I certainly wouldn't pitch him this song and this song, or so-and-so just had children, or so-and-so's dad played baseball. You know, you start thinking about their life stories and their situations, um, yeah. and almost matching songs like that. But, yeah, there's, I mean, when I write for myself, it is generally by myself with, again, with my bass player or guitar player in the rock band or, you know, a part of the music of that, but... Mm-hmm. When I write for Graham, when, when Granville Automatic writes, even though we co-write every song, we don't actually sit down in the same room together very frequently. We will <laughs> send send almost finished songs to each other. The other person might change some melodies or change some lyrics, or we'll have a verse in a chorus. Someone else will take it home and write a verse mm-hmm. because we both do work sort of in those personal spaces with those that material. Yeah, we have co-written. We have co-written for that only on the last record, which is the lost history of Nashville. And we co-wrote with some of our favorite people and favorite artists. And it, it, we were really nervous going into it because we had these stories and our sort of way of doing things. And we were fortunate to find some people who were pretty fascinated by it and kind of got into it. And that yeah. didn't mean somebody didn't step, step out of the room and go sit on the front porch and write a verse and bring it back or, you know, take it and finish it or change some stuff. I mean, uh, it was definitely a new experience, but there are certain people we managed to do it pretty well with, I think. But yeah, and I had to learn the lesson. I was in an all-girl country band for a while. 
where we were getting songs pitched to us to play because we were on a smaller label. And mm-hmm. then I thought from the other side, because I heard the girls say, I would never sing that. I don't want to say that. That's not what I feel. And so hearing it from that opposite side certainly opened my eyes as a songwriter yeah. about how important, how important that is. That must be quite a revelation, really, to have that kind of dynamic and see it that way. Um, yeah, I think so. So it's hard to keep keep all those perspectives going <laughs> and not let them, you know, trip you up as a writer. Who, you know, if you believe in inspiration, right. you have to trust that sometimes. Uh, I I know that there's those outside pitches that have been successful, and a lot mm-hmm. of times that you know, it's partly luck and partly you know, there's a relationship there already somewhere in that chain. But more often, right, you're writing, the artist is writing with other writers and you're really capturing something that's more personal. Um, And I think sometimes, you know, in in an ideal world, you're an artist like Leonard Cohen or Rodney Crowell or Jim Lauderdale or these guys that do have record after record after amazing record and and big artists, you know, big commercial country artists hear these undeniable songs and release their own versions. I mean, um, that's obviously... Quite an honor. Even someone going far back as, as well, not that far back, but Nancy Griffith, same thing, had her own career. Yet people mm. cut her songs, and there's so many examples of that. And I think that's something that then you really know you're doing well as a song. Yeah, yeah, like they they were really meaningful to the person based on when they heard it. Mm. Or, yeah, that's really cool. so. Getting into the Granville Automatic stuff, it's an interesting contrast between writing for yourself. And even co-writing in the sense that you're getting into in this project, other people's stories and like a period of history. And that's Mm -hmm. really fascinating. And like even the origin of the name, which is it's named after a 19th century typewriter. So it sounds like there's a concept and a central idea for the band. Do you want to talk about that? Like how you arrive at that? Sure. And it began really as a storytelling band. We were yeah. both lamenting the fact that we felt like stories have been lost in a lot of music. So it began mm-hmm. with story songs. And the first record is just that. It's a collection of story songs. Some are historical stories, some are not. And then it evolved into getting an um, incredible residency in Seaside, Florida to write a record about lost landscapes of the Civil War, wow. which was an incredible incredible project to do. We worked with the Civil War Trust. And then suddenly we were the Civil War band and we were like, oh no, how did this happen? That wasn't really <laughs> the intent. But we, you know, then our next project, we, we had already written a text, an entire record about Texas and Texas history and stories from Texas. And we had a whole one about ghosts and we were starting to write one about lost buildings of New York, mm. which is about half written. And about that time we got this publishing deal with BMG in Nashville and was, was not, you know, we were so, it was not something we thought would happen, but it did. And it was the most amazing experience yeah. ever. And, but that we were going into music row every day. And we started realizing as we were working on this New York record that Nashville was disappearing just daily around yeah, us. Yeah. And my bandmate had the idea, why aren't we doing lost buildings in Nashville? So we shifted a little bit and took them over a year to research some really bizarre and dark. And the civil war records, this very sort of quiet, sad, um, 
very kind of haunted record. Yeah. And this Nashville record is just, it's all tales of lying and cheating and debauchery and drugs and deception. And, you know, there's always redemption at the end of it, but it, certainly we kept finding these recurring themes here. And right. Like a proper much, frontier much, town. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a much more, you know, the, the Civil War record is again, very quiet. And we recorded it up in Brooklyn and this one's more of a big kind of, almost a rock sound in places. So it developed where we do these concept records and we have these three other plans that, you know, when a, hopefully some sort of investment shows up where we can do all those because it's expensive mm-hmm. to record. But, mm-hmm. um, and then and we've continued in the meantime because we have so many songs that we love that we've co-written or songs one of us has written that don't fit one of those concept albums that we've put those out just as singles. Okay. So um, one of our most popular songs was a song called You Can Go to Hell, I'm Going to Texas. And since we have this sort of Texas record in our back pocket, but people kept asking for that song, we went ahead and just put out a single version, you know, down the line, it'll be on that album. And we have a new one coming out this this month called MTV. And it, I, I was just working on the press stuff for it. And I said, you know, the days when MTV played videos are history too. <laughs> Those are gone. <laughs> yeah. So we uh, kind of have a nostalgic song about what, rushing to get home from high school or college or whatever and watch, you know, watch videos all day with yeah. your, with whoever you were dating. And so the, it is the stories that appeal to us the most. And it developed from the story concept into getting a really amazing fellowship to write a record. And then, you know, starting on all these other ideas we have and, and Nashville just sort of, I think songs and concepts sort of tell you when it's time. And this yeah. most recent one, it was Nashville's time and that led to getting a book deal. So it yeah. must have been a, a purpose. So that's like, so now you're, you're down this road of becoming authors as, as a link mm-hmm. to this. I see you're doing mm-hmm. the hidden history of music row, which I'm just super fascinated and can't wait to see what you come up with because I love those kind of stories and it's a meaningful place for those of us who, you know, love rock and roll music and Americana and country and, you know, there's, like there's so much to it. Of, our, and, of our American music really. Yeah. Well, and it's, it is the way it was is no more, that's for sure. Um, and it is under sort of a constant state of, you know, teardowns and new condos and new buildings. And the music industry itself is very split on how it should or should not be um, treated. But yeah, the hidden history, we, we the book will be out in the summer, next summer. And we are writing it with a guy named Brian Allison, who is son mm. of the country, country music association's founder, his father, Joe Allison. Mm. And we've all, we've each taken a bunch of chapters and divided them up kind of based on our, expertise and things that we're passionate about and i actually am down at two chapters left i wrapped one up yesterday and nice. uh, it's been pretty fascinating yeah i have two i've got a got to work on right over the next month or so and um yeah i think the idea is to write it from the perspective not as so much a hard history but as a people who love nashville and who love the myth of nashville can get a little deeper into that and find out some things they never would have would have elsewise elsewhere and how what if anything transfers over from writing songs to writing like chapters for a book like this oh so much i think um in particular there are several stories 
that we wrote songs about for the record that are expand the, the story behind it is expanded mm. um, and told in a greater detail for the book. Um, uh, the stuff I was working on yesterday touches on Jimi Hendrix and his time here and how much he was allowed on Music Row and how the, some of the cats from from Music Row would go over, sneak over to Jefferson Street to the quote, you know, bad side of town and watch mm-hmm. him play because they he's like he can outplay us all. All those guys can outplay us all. Um, to this, there's a song on our record called "The House That Fell Down." Okay. Uh, that's a whole chapter in the book. Um, so, but as far as the technique, you know, we we've wrestled with that um, a good bit because we want to write like songwriters. We don't want to write like historians, and I think that means. Um, a slightly different style of writing, perhaps a little more informal. But mm-hmm. I think some of the great historians who write in popular popular book, you know, in the book market today, people like Stephen Ambrose or John, even John Keegan or um, David McCullough, they write like you're reading a novel. It's not like you're reading a dry history book. And I think we've so we're hoping to make it feel like it's like real like people, an experience. Right? Yeah, like real people. And, you know, we we work on Music Row every day. So we, you know, know get to talk to a lot of these people who were involved in the beginning of, of Music Row in the mid-50s and people who were a part of, you know, the explosion in the 90s when Garth Brooks sort of took it internationally to the very intense changes that are going on right now, wherein... 10 years, we've lost, actually in five years, we've lost 50 of the 450 buildings that were considered part of the historic district. So, um, you know, and and to be a part of that debate, what do you say? What is a part of Music Row's future to to have the buildings that the bigger industry needs? So I think having people who are very close to it hopefully will make it a compelling read. Yeah, and like, I guess this is a bit of an aside, but I... I hope, you know, and I heard you talking on a podcast about like how record labels don't invest in artists anymore and help people through that growth period. You know, I I hope that there's a link between preserving these historic places and preserving some of that culture that helps artists thrive. Um, Well, and you've hit the, the, um, nail on the head and the fact that we have a city that has so rapidly transformed over the last even three to five years mm-hmm. where the cost of living is one of the highest in the country, mm-hmm. uh, where you have an, uh, one of the top five influx of new residents. And yeah. you have, when I moved here from Atlanta, uh, I was like, great, I'm going to save money. This place is so much less expensive. And right. just in that time period, it, Atlanta is less expensive now. So wow. the, the, at the heart of, the debate for me are two things, the myth of Nashville and why people come here if they want to be songwriters and musicians. How mm. do we preserve that myth? And two, how do we preserve a place that the songwriting creative class can afford to live? And right. I don't I don't know that we're doing either one of those things, um, but how do we do them? I think that's it's not something that the city of Nashville on a government side is particularly interested in, even though we did get a new mayor, so we'll see, but right. it's, it's development. Development is key for sure. Yeah. Right now. I, I see a lot of, yeah. see a lot of parallels there between that and Austin and Seattle and other places, right? Where, you know, I see 
Seattle more so than Austin because I don't feel Austin ever had the music industry infrastructure. No, but Whereas, it definitely had art, artist affordability in this kind of central. Sure. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Like brain trust. So everyone's, everyone's, even I started thinking, well, do I go to Grand Rapids, Michigan or Tulsa, Oklahoma or, you know, Spokane, Washington. I mean, places that are still affordable yet have a, a music community and an arts community. Yeah. Um, it's tough because where will there certainly will be a song. I hope there will continue to be songwriters and a community, but I don't know if you, you can pick it up and move it somewhere. I don't, yeah. I don't know. Of course, the founders, many of the founders wanted it to continue to grow and just focus on the, the money side of it, mm-hmm. um, the businesses that started there. So it is it is quite a debate ongoing here right now. So I guess making this a little more personal, um, and certainly I've got my own attachment to this kind of conversation, having done music for a number of years and kind of in a way pivoted from actively putting all my eggs in the songwriting basket to doing other types of creative work. Um, Where is that line for you? You know, seeing between there's this landscape in the music industry and we're talking about affordability and right and the industry. do you, do you spend a lot of time thinking about that, like personally, in terms of what choices you make creatively? Well, I mean, the bottom line for me is if I could write songs and write books, whether they're nonfiction or fiction, mm. for a living full time, I have zero question that that's what I would be doing. I one of the fortunate ones who had a publishing deal, and for several years, I could do that full time. And, you know, 15 years ago, about 3,500 people in Nashville could do that. Today, Mm -hmm. about 250 have publishing deals. So there is, um, there seems to be a handful of ways to go about it. There is the old school, you bartend or you waitress on the side. Mm -hmm. And during the day, you're creating, you're touring with your band, you have the the flexibility to leave those jobs or work less shifts a week. Um, or you marry well, or you have a wealthy family. That's mm-hmm. always one I, I see over and over again where, I mean, I've been in bands with folks where they didn't need to worry. They don't, you know, they yeah. knew they had a roof to come home to and the bills were paid. And that makes, certainly makes music less stressful. And then there's what I call the jack of all trades folks who are trying to, you know, work several odd jobs or freelance yeah. jobs and continue to write. So I think I fall in the trying to keep, you know, keep an income enough to pay rent and bills, but still be able to do the Nashville, you know, the Nashville as day job type mm-hmm. schedule. So it is, it is challenging. I mean, I think that you can start thinking about personally for me, I had a, a wonderful nine to five job at, Emory University in Atlanta for many years. Um, mm. Incredible f- folks to work with, a very secure job. It paid securely. And I made a decision to cash out my retirement fund at the time after having been there for about 10 years mm-hmm. and hand, hand the government 50% of that, which is about what they take if you're you know, yeah. you're young and you cash that out. Yeah. And the other 50% gave me enough money to live um, kind of a bare bones for a year in Nashville without taking any other job. So I rationed that out very carefully per month and I wrote two or three times a day. I got up here and I'd been splitting my time and I literally wrote two or three times a day and networked and, and it ended up paying off somewhat by hard work work and somewhat by luck that a major artist cut a song I had, which led to the BMG deal. But, 
publishing deals come and go. You can have one for a year. You can have one for five years. You can have one for 10 years. And then you don't for five years or you don't for two years. It's, it is literally um, kind of a non-predictable thing. So you almost have to pick, you have to, you have to draw your own personal line. And I, yes, I do think about it daily. How long do I keep doing this Mm -hmm. before I go enough's enough financially? Do I ever question it emotionally or, or the fact that I love doing it? No. Do I question it financially daily? Yes. Mm. And I assume that's because you're assuming most of the risk financially for a lot of those choices in terms of what you create and produce and put out there. Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, and and again, there are the lucky folks who do get a record deal and, you know, as far as, you know, being able to make more records, but we've also had uh, as Granville Automatic and, and as my rock band, I've certain records have had kick, uh, successful Kickstarters who have had it or have had investors behind them that have allowed me to keep doing it. So those situations have been pretty amazing, but I don't think people think in terms of if you're going to put out a quality record and you're going to get the studio and you're going to um, mix it and you're going to master it and you're going to do the artwork and then you're going to put some money into publicizing it and you're going to mail everybody their copies, you can reasonably, like on the bottom end of that, you're at $25,000 to do it right. And that doesn't include radio campaign, which would, you know, you blow through six figures. So I I think people don't think about that so much. Um, But yeah, no, for me, it's more about... I, I, you know, I, I do have things I could go take a day job and do, but that feels a bit, that feels a bit like, like literally going to an office every day for me, it feels like going backwards because it took me so long to Mm -hmm. take a risk and walk away from that. So yeah, then, then sometimes I think I'll just, you know, you know, uh, just make it a hobby, continue to do these bands that I love and stop worrying so much about, well, if I just get that one hit, everything's going to change. So I don't, yeah, you're right. It's a daily, it's a daily internal dialogue for sure. Yeah. Well, I think you've, you know, regardless of what happens, you've got this really interesting angle with combining like the kind of shallower depth of the story, you know, not in an emotional way, but like short form with the songs of this, these mm-hmm. capturing these historical periods and interesting stories and expanding that out with books. I mean, that's a really cool way to package it together. And, you know, there's other things, places you can go with that as well, I imagine. But certainly today's landscape doesn't make it easy. <laughs> like now it sounds no, like it's, you, yeah. have to, <laughs> you have to think like the publisher, you have to think like the label, think like the marketer. And this is all after, you know, you know, well, and the cost of touring, I mean, just if you have to fly anywhere, I mean, hotels, if you're okay, staying in a scary hotel for 60 mm-hmm. bucks a night, it's still 60 bucks a night and cost of gas. And you've got, you know, or you're, you know, going through car, we, oh gosh, Granville's just fly through, flies through vehicles because you put 50, 60,000 miles a year on them or you rent and then that, or you, it, there's not easy answers to that either. So, yeah, no. but but yes. Yeah, I did the, I, you know, I was part of, like, I was trying to push the artist thing plus the songwriter thing. Um, and I did the math and it was like, there's no way I come out ahead as an artist in today's day and age. No, it's weird. You need to, you can really start making live money really well in certain, there's a couple ways to do it. I think I, I 
you know, have not been in that scenario where it's really going, yeah. you know, where you're really making a lot of money, but I think you can. Yeah. Um, and are you talking about licensing and, and film and TV in that regard? Or? Uh, no, no, I'm talking about just being on the road. You can make That's money. Great. If you start I, uh, getting into performing arts centers, but all of these require booking agents. So the key yeah. to most of it is having a great booking agent. And then yeah. there are some sort of pop you into the season of something at so-and-so's performing arts center and here's your five grand. So that works, but that's a, that, that's a, it's also kind of outside the mainstream. So yeah, there's, there's, you gotta but, be your own executive. And yeah. Yeah. And Nashville's a great spot, you know, as far as being an artist go, just because of the concentration of talent People are available to work on projects and geographically it's a great spot to get out on the road from as opposed to say Seattle where you got to drive 10 hours to get somewhere. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. It's nice to be close to the mid Atlantic, the Midwest, the South. It's all reasonable. Although we, we have a family in Texas, so we end up driving all the way to Texas a lot, which is great. And I love it. But uh, you know, hour 14, I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, (laughs) <laughs> it's a long drive. It's a, it a long haul. And so what's next for you? You've got this book coming. Yeah, the goal right now is to finish the book, which I hope to finish within the next month. Um, and just continuing to songwrite. Um, and yeah, what's next is always going on in my head, you know, that back to the, how long do you keep doing it till it starts to feel silly? Mm. But I think just, you know, writing and, and I hope that, that, um, I'm very eager to get this rock stuff I've been working on. I've written about 25 songs, um, nice. that's that, that, um, are kind of me as a, an artist. So getting that stuff out and, um, that's a priority as well as, Again, Granville has so many songs written and so many albums we haven't recorded that I hope something moves forward with that so we're able to get those done. It's always fun to record those and yeah. see those those stories come to life that way. But yeah, and then just continuing to write for other artists and you just keep hoping for those moments where all the hard work hits luck and you get to just feel awesome for about six months when something happens. Yeah, and I'm sure it's rewarding for you even, you know, depending on regardless of how it does that like it looks like you got some great collaborations in this last project meet some really cool people i saw jim oh absolutely lauderdale and kevin griffin who i met a few years ago super generous nice guy and ben fields yeah some really cool people like i assume those relationships their own kind of intangible value to get to do that work Sure. And I was always a big better of an Ezra fan, especially that the first two records I love. So, and and he is, as you said, just as generous and charming and, and is awesome to work with. And so getting to, to write, there was a song called Treaty Oak with him and he actually sang on the record and he, he put a hidden message at the end of the track oh. that we have. Um, if you really get your headphones out and crank the volume, you might hear Kevin being Kevin at the end of the track, which is pretty <laughs> fun. Nice. I can't give it away. You just you gotta you have to find it. Cool. Yeah, I've got a got a friend who would be interested in knowing that. Super super fan. Um <laughs> so when you're doing your own work and you're writing, you know, you're you're really getting into your story and, and sharing that with people, is that difficult for you at some level? Do you think about that while you're writing or performing? Kind of exposing you know, I've, myself? I've, 
certainly heard people talk about that and read about, but I, I honestly, that stuff never crosses my mind. I don't know if that's weird or not, but that just, I mean, I'm kind of an introvert when I'm not on stage and I'm just kind of a quiet, not antisocial, but I'm, I, you know, I'm not someone that likes parties. I like one-on-one conversations and um, I never think about it. It's never really, hmm. it's never, never, never crossed my mind. I don't know if that, what that, <laughs> what that says about me, but I've just always loved to write. So it, yeah. it feels like, and I, I, even though I'm, I enjoy being on stage a lot, um, whether it's running a rock band or playing guitar, um, I just enjoy it. It feels somewhat in the moment and not mm-hmm. thinking about everything at that yeah. time. So, but yeah, I don't think about the, I just write what I write and I don't think about it otherwise. Probably yeah. would mess with me if I did. Yeah. And that was always the case, even when you were, you know, a kid. Yeah. I mean, I didn't start writing songs until I was a teenager, but I mean, not seriously, but yeah, it's never, it's never bothered me. I wrote poetry from the time I was probably 11 or 12 years old. Nice. That's, that's proper punk rock right there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So for a couple closing questions, I guess, um, one is an obligatory one that you probably hear a lot um, for people who are just coming into Nashville is, Hey, I only write lyrics. Is there a place for me? I think it's harder if you only write lyrics. Um, Is there a place for you? Yes. But it involves you finding the people that complement what you do. Hmm. So finding a, finding a melody person and a, a guitar player or a piano player that really work with you. But I think, you know, coming from writing poetry when I first started, I realized I, I at 16 or 17, was like, I, I'm, you know, I played a little bit of piano, a little bit of saxophone, all these mm-hmm. silly things. But I thought, I've got to, I've got to be able to present this stuff. So I don't think it means that you won't find a place, but I think it does make it more difficult. And I feel like, there are lyricists who come in and really have a net they what they present and what they offer feels like lyrics. Mm. And then I think you're onto it. There are some people who are big hit songwriters that have ideas and lyrics and just go and go and go. And they're kind of geniuses. Mm-hmm. Then there's a whole bunch of people who just bring poetry in yeah. and that's different and that gets difficult. So I think yeah. if you're really writing lyric, it's one thing, but the line between lyric and poetry is important to understand. Yeah, and a singable. Uh, how do you get an eye for a singable Sing. lyric? I think you just, you, you're a musician. That's the catch. Yeah. A singable lyric, you're familiar with melody and you're familiar with rhythm and it's you can feel it, um, but it reads so differently on the page. And I think you can tell when someone has just had poetry set to music. Hmm. It feels like that. So I do think if you are a lyricist, yes, it just means you're going to have to work harder and it's never too late to, yeah. even if, I mean, like it's never too late to sit down and learn you know, a few chords just in the key of C on piano or, or guitar and just sort of, even if you're not bringing it into writing rooms and you're not playing out, just taking the time to get better at that will only help you. And if you're a lyricist, then gosh, for goodness sakes, write out the lyrics to your favorite songs, especially if you're trying to be a, a, a radio writer, mm-hmm. the hit songs have 75 to a hundred words. And if you're showing up with these long poetic 400 word things, it's just so mm-hmm. far outside the realm. Might, might it work on a great Americana record or folk record? 
Yes. But if you are coming to town to want to be a commercial songwriter, right. I think studying how, how contemporary lyric is crafted is very, very important. Right. Probably just printing out I, I mean, I, looking at, at yeah. breakout line by line is probably instructive. Now, have you ever, did Absolutely. you ever come across, come across Tom Hambridge while you're working down there? No, I don't know Tom. Yeah, he's a producer and a drummer and a songwriter, and he works a lot with like Buddy Guy and stuff. But mm-hmm. it was, I love there's certain guys that like they'll break down like here's a really accessible way to just like be good enough or do enough to help the song if you're a lyricist. And so he just mm-hmm. he just show like you know just take the top string of the guitar. <laughs> and bang on that in whatever time, you know, counting four or six and, you know, just play the top line note along with, you know, your kind of demo of the song. And that's well, one, for other and people one, to latch on to. And I think another thing people don't think about is this isn't the rule, but it certainly made me think a lot about songwriting careers. And I, I played in a band with someone who I looked up to as a writer who had several publishing deals and she'd had several big cuts and I, I, it dawned on me at this point, I was looking at my, I was like, I've written like 500 songs. Why is this stuff happening for me? Mm-hmm. And I asked her, I, I said, how many songs did you write before things started to happen? Because I was just thinking of the, you know, the 10,000 hours, all that. And she mm-hmm. said, hmm, it was around song 1100 for me where things started oh. to happen. <laughs> yeah. Now, in, so in, in that moment, I thought, well, I'm lucky this stuff has happened for me in the four and five and six hundreds that I've had a lot of syncs that I've had won a contest. I've cool things that happened, but Oh man, I have a lot of work to do. And it was around song 900 for me that things started to kick in. So I think people also, I, you know, I talked to so many people, I'm like, how many songs have you written? Oh, 30. Oh, a hundred. I'm like, okay, great. There are sometimes that's enough, but very rarely yeah. is that enough. So I think, I think it's it's quantity and quality, but really more just the having done it so many times. At that point, you really have to enjoy the process and like the outcome sounds like, you know, it's a bit of a byproduct, you know, maybe, but mm-hmm. but just doing it because you enjoy it. And oh, yeah, for sure. Like, That's, if, you like, if, you, if you don't love it, you will not keep going in this town. That's yeah, for sure. It sounds like you definitely have that passion and not going any place anytime soon um so where can listeners find you um you can find my stuff at www.lightsofdetroit.com mm-hmm. and you can listen to granville automatic at www.granvilleautomatic.com great and i can vouch that the music is wonderful and oh thank you yeah and you're also involved with historic nashville i saw that Correct. Yeah. I'm vice vice president of historic Nashville. Yeah. And so if people have more interest in that cause and how to work with you, um, what do they need to know about that? Sure. That's historicnashville.org. Okay. Yeah. Well, Elizabeth, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thanks for having me, Ethan. It's a great conversation. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Fearless Storyteller. As a reminder, any and all links can be found in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, will you please consider leaving a review? By doing so, you'll be helping new listeners discover The Fearless Storyteller podcast.